Good afternoon. Uh, I want to welcome everybody to the Cato Institute today. All of you here in the Hayek Auditorium who braved the elements this morning uh, with the wind and the sleet and the rain and everything else that we got today. I think it was the full spectrum of weather. Uh, I want to thank everybody who's joining us online, uh, those watching on C-SPAN, and those following on Twitter using hashtag FedsLeaveEd, hashtag FedsLeaveEd. Uh, my name is Neil McCluskey, and I am the director of the Center for Educational Freedom here at the Cato Institute. Uh, before we begin our discussion today, I want to take a moment to remember Andrew Colson, uh, who is the director of the Center for Educational Freedom for a decade, uh, and perhaps the leading voice in the country uh, advocating for a full free market in education. Andrew passed away earlier this week after a 15-month battle with cancer. Uh, alas, this official Cato photograph, as with really any official photo, doesn't capture the true nature of Andrew, uh, who is perhaps the cheeriest person uh, you could ever hope to meet. Uh, even as he fought off seemingly endless, sometimes maddening uh, battles for school choice, for educational freedom. Uh, the way Andrew announced his cancer diagnosis uh, captured perfectly who he was, and he wrote, Contra Schwarzenegger, apparently it is a tumor. Uh, those of you who remember the ads for Kindergarten Cop or who have seen Kindergarten Cop probably get that reference. Uh, Andrew's contributions to educational freedom will be his most lasting legacy, including the must-read book which uh, thrust him to the front of the school choice movement, uh, which he wrote after he retired, actually, as a Microsoft software engineer. That book was Market Education, the Untold History. Closely connected to this was his leading advocacy for scholarship tax credits as the least coercive and most effective way to expand school choice. Uh, but his contribution has not yet ended. For the last few years, uh, Andrew had been working on a multi-part documentary series about the presence and promise of educational freedom, um, which uh, was almost completed as of the time of his death. We hope to see it on television screens across the country in the coming months. Andrew Coulson will be painfully missed, but his ideas will continue to spur us on. Now to today's topic, federal education policy, another area where Andrew did some important work. And here's a spoiler alert. He didn't think federal meddling worked very well, and I am inclined to agree with him. Um, now it is my pleasure to introduce our moderator, Michael Hansen, who will be telling you a bit about the latest developments in federal education policy and guiding our discussion today. Dr. Hansen is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the deputy director of the Brown Center on Education Policy. A labor economist by training, he has conducted original research on teacher quality, value-added measurement, teacher evaluation, and teacher responses to incentives and accountability using state longitudinal data systems. He holds a PhD in economics from the University of Washington. Michael, it's all yours. Thank you, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, and my condolences to the, to the Cato family on Andrew's passing. <clears throat> so the new Every Student Succeeds Act, or ESSA, passed both chambers of Congress in December of last year with bipartisan support and was quickly enacted by President Obama shortly thereafter. This current reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act is generally viewed as ending and turning the page on the predecessor law, No Child Left Behind. 
No Child Left Behind was widely unpopular with many stakeholders, including teachers and educators, parents, state and district education leaders. Thus, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the surprising and rapid progress of the bill ending No Child Left Behind was received with much fanfare from many corners. Now, it's useful to frame our conversation uh, that will happen here today around the tensions between the two opposing viewpoints that played a central role in both ESSA's enactment recently and also has been part of the federal education debate since the original enactment of ESEA over 50 years ago. And that framing, of course, is one of states' rights versus civil rights. States have the authority to provide education and thus can design schools according to their population's interests, values, their priorities. <clears throat> and in, in most states, of course, these are, these are constitutional authorities that they have. Um, however, on the other end of the spectrum, civil rights groups seek to promote the equal investment in and advancement of uh, disadvantaged student groups within those states. From this perspective, public education is widely viewed as a vehicle for social mobility and ensuring all students have access to high quality education as a necessary condition to promoting a society where all have an equal chance for opportunity and an equal voice in civil society. The, bipart <clears throat> the bipartisan support of ESSA would support the argument that, this, that the law has found a way to successfully walk the line between two, these two opposing viewpoints. But have we really been successful in achieving this? The, the questioning this assertion is really part of today's debate. And of course, many public policy debates in the US can be tracked back to this tension between states' rights versus civil rights. So echoes of this debate are also in questions about access to health care, gun control, welfare policy, drug and illicit substance policy, many, many others. So education is not alone in trying to grapple with these two conflicting views. And so in light of this, I, I uh, encourage the, the audience here and also the speakers here to ask, what is it about the nature of public education that makes this conversation different from debates in other policy settings? Does the nature of education call for a more customized relationship between states and the federal government that we wouldn't necessarily apply to other elements of a policy decision. <clears throat> so, so this topic is not our main focus of conversation, but it's a latent part of our conversation. The main topic, however, is questions the degree to which this new law, ESSA, has actually changed the federal role in education policy making. We're here to question the gap between the perceived change of the law versus the real change of the law. Uh, it is reported that political opponents very soon after the enactment of the law walked away with different interpretations of what that law is actually doing. <clears throat> and so part of what we are here to do is to help, uh, to help um, hone in on, whether, on who is correct here and, uh, and whether the federal government has uh, stepped back too far or whether they've stepped back enough. <clears throat> One of the strong supporters of the new law, ironically, was former U.S. Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, who many viewed this law as a direct repudiation of. And so, in that sense, 
given that Arne Duncan also has his support of the law, is it, uh, is it reasonable that um, those who were opposed to Arne Duncan's leadership are also correct in their support of the law as well? So given the variety of opinions, it's not, it, not everyone can be simultaneously correct about their assertions about the law. So this brings us to our primary question here today, which we'll kick off the conversation with. How, does a how big of a change was actually made with this new ESSA law? And how does this change the relationship in education policymaking between the federal government and states and districts who actually have the authority to administer public education for their jurisdictions? Now, before I actually um, turn the time over to, my, to the guests, I'm going to uh, offer a few words of logistics. I'm going to introduce the four participants who are sitting front of, in front of you here. And uh, after those introductions, I'm going to allow each of them 10 minutes to prepare their, or to present their prepared remarks on, on a topic. These uh, remarks will, will run 10 minutes. Uh, we will try to keep Q, audience Q&A to a minimum until, um, until after everyone has given these opening remarks. And then we'll open it up for a moderated discussion and audience Q&A thereafter. Okay, so it is my pleasure now to introduce you to our four panelists. Uh, first, we have David Cleary. He's over here on my left. David Cleary is the Chief of Staff to the United States, to United States Senator Lamar Alexander and the Majority Staff Director to the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, also known as the HELP Committee. David manages the Senator's committee staff and personal office and is the Principal Advisor on Alexander's legislative agenda, including education, healthcare, and fiscal issues. Prior to joining uh, Lamar Alexander's team, David worked for the House Education and Workforce Committee for Chairman John Boehner from Ohio on disability policy. David started his career at the U.S. Department of Education, working on elementary and secondary education and special education issues for several years. Second, to my far right, we have Lindsay M. Burke. Uh, Mrs. Burke uh, researches and writes on federal and state education issues as the Will Skillman Fellow in Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Burke devotes her time and research to two critical areas of education policy. First, reducing federal intervention in education, and second, empowering families with education choice. Burke's commentary, research, and op-eds have appeared in various newspapers and magazines, and she has spoken on education reform issues across the country and internationally, and has appeared on numerous radio and television shows. She has published evaluations of school choice programs and options for public policy foundations, such as the Virginia Institute for Public Policy and the Freedom Foundation, excuse me, the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice. Ms. Burke holds a bachelor's degree in politics from Hollins University at, in Roanoke, Virginia, and a master of teaching degree in foreign language education from the University of Virginia. She is also currently studying education policy as a doctoral student at George Mason University. Third, we have Gerard Robinson here to my immediate left. Gerard Robinson is a resident fellow at uh, the American Enterprise Institute, AEI, where he works on education policy issues, including choice in public and private schools, implementation of K-12 standards, innovation in for-profit educational institutions, and the role of community colleges and historically black colleges and universities in adult advancement. Before joining AEI, Robinson served as Commissioner of Education for the State of Florida and Secretary of Education for the Commonwealth of Virginia. 
As president of the Black Alliance for Educational Options, where he is now chairman of the board, Robinson worked to ensure that children in low-income and working-class black families in several states and the District of Columbia were given the opportunity to attend good schools. Throughout his career, he has evaluated the effects of reform initiatives on parental choice and student achievement, advocated for laws to improve delivery of teaching and learning, and public, published essays on how to make a good policy to give all children a chance at a good job and a good future. A proponent of the importance of education to civil society, Robinson has spoken before audiences in the United States, in China, and the United Kingdom. Robinson started his career by teaching fifth grade in a private inner city school, and he is a member of many education-related boards. Robinson has a Master of Education degree from Harvard University, a Bachelor of Arts degree in Philosophy from Howard University, and an Associate of Arts degree from El Camino College. And finally, I'd like to uh, introduce Neil McCluskey. Of course, Neil was standing before you just a few moments ago. But Neil, but Neil is the director of Cato's Center for Educational Freedom and is the author of the book, Feds in the Classroom, How Big Government Corrupts, Cripples, and Compromises American Education. McCluskey holds an undergraduate degree from Georgetown University, where he double majored in government and English. He, and he holds a master's degree in public, excuse me, political science from Rutgers University, and a PhD in public policy from George Mason University. It's, it is now my pleasure to uh, first hand the microphone over to David Cleary. But before we begin, I would uh, remind all of these speakers to please uh, turn off your cell phones. David, I'm going to hand the mic over to you, and then we will go in succession in the order in which we were introduced. David, Lindsay, Gerard, and then Neil. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is David Cleary. I work for Lamar Alexander. I was his lead uh, education policy staffer for uh, the past seven years as we've been working to fix No Child Left Behind. The, uh, the goal that we set out to, to achieve was to reduce as much as possible the federal role in our nation's K-12 education system. Knowing that we needed 60 votes to pass a piece of legislation, we needed President Obama to sign a piece of legislation, and we needed to, to get on the floor and off the floor was always central in our mind. Um, we think that the Every Student Succeeds Act is a, a significant step in the right direction. It is not the, the panacea to all ills that the federal government has created over the past 35, 40 years in K-12 education, but it is certainly better than the alternative, better than No Child Left Behind, better than the waivers. Um, and so when we started out the, at the beginning of this Congress, we looked at the environment that we were in. We'd been seven years overdue for reauthorization of No Child Left Behind. We had 42 states, 43 with Washington getting its waiver revoked, but 42 states with, with waivers where Arne Duncan was, in essence, the, the nation's chief superintendent or the chairman of the National School Board. And that was, uh, you know, the wrong direction. That was certainly not a good thing. And we looked at what was in the waivers and we looked at what was going on and we were really concerned. Through the race to the top and through the waivers, you had, in essence, a common core mandate. Uh, they were very clever in crafting it. It wasn't a, an overt actual mandate that would have violated the Department of Education Organization Act or the No Child Left Behind Act or the General Education Provisions Act, which all have very robust uh, prohibitions on uh, an actual mandate. But they found clever lawyerly ways to, in, in essence, force every state to adopt Common Core or almost every state to adopt Common Core. That was very... Uh, 
difficult for us to deal with. It was very offensive to kind of the, the notion of states' rights and letting states figure this out. So we, we set out to try and overturn that. We didn't like in the waivers the, the teacher evaluation mandate, the requirement that states adopt teacher evaluation that linked teacher performance to student performance through tests. Um, it, was, it was a very Republican idea. It started in the teacher incentive fund. It's actually something that Lamar uh, created when he was governor in, in the 80s was kind of an evaluation of aligning teachers to teacher performance to student performance. But a federal mandate, a federal requirement, was absolutely the wrong thing to do. It, it created a system where states had to put their system together and then come to Washington and say, Mother, may I? Did I get it right? And that was absolutely the wrong thing to do, again. So we, you know, we looked at that environment and we tried to figure out, okay, how do we get to 60? How do we get Obama to sign a piece of legislation? How do we get the House to pass a piece of legislation? And, and that kind of guided our, our principles. And... What we think that we did was we had pretty significant success. We turned off the, the hidden mandate on the, the, the Common Core. We turned off the teacher evaluation mandate. We significantly, for the first time in, in kind of education legislation and probably lots of other legislation, turned off the Secretary's ability to, to regulate and mandate and dictate and, and turned it in, the, in a different direction. All of the prohibitions and the, re and the restrictions on the Secretary's authority are, are virtually unprecedented in federal legislation. And it was what almost brought the bill down, even up to the very last minute in the conference, where we had the White House and, and some Democrats really concerned about the nature of the prohibitions that we were putting on the Secretary. So it was a, a significant reversal, of course. And did it go far enough? I think that's, that's debatable. Um, there's certainly an appetite for more local control, more state control. Um, I would point out that when we were on the floor, Senator Alexander's amendment to turn all 89 federal education programs into a voucher block grant was defeated 42 to 53 or 54. Um, so the, the political appetite for a voucher for a, a complete block grant wasn't there. Um, so in the, in the political reality, we tried to do as much as we possibly could to turn the tide. And we think that we've accomplished that. We've, you know, the Wall Street Journal said it's the biggest retrenchment uh, reversal of, of federal control in 25 years in education policy. And that's a good step. It's a good beginning. Um, and now the question is up to the states and to the local school districts about how to implement the law. What do they do? We we've, we've have to all keep a very careful eye on the Department of Education, the U.S. Department of Education, and what it is that they're going to do with regulations and negotiated rulemaking. Um, the, you know, the Secretary does have the right to regulate, but what he can regulate on is very constrained. And so it's now up to states to push back. If states don't want to have common core state standards, it's totally up to them. That hasn't been the case, so now it's up to them. If they want to have a teacher evaluation system, that's up to them. Um, and they can choose to implement it or not. And as we look at what the department does, states have, the, have much more f freedom and flexibility to say no and to push back on the secretary. Waivers are no longer the condition, and No Child Left Behind is gone. So states now have the secretary over the barrel as opposed to the secretary having them over the barrel. There's no more adequate early progress. There's no more highly qualified teacher. There's no more annual measurable objectives. The, the, the whole apparatus of No Child Left Behind and the waivers is, is ended. And so now states can develop their own accountability systems. Now states can develop their own measurements for trying to figure out whether schools are succeeding or failing, which schools you identify. 
we do have some some guardrails or parameters or whatever word you want to use that that were insisted on in order to get to 60 and to get a presidential signature. States do have to identify the lowest performing bottom five percent of schools, um, and that is a, a concession that was made. But it's it's a a, a tolerable concession because states. As much as we say that you have to identify 5%, states have to figure out how to do it. So there's no micromanaging from Washington. There's no ability for the secretary to say, no, you didn't identify the right schools, you didn't do it the right way, or I want you to do it this way. Um, so we think that we've, we've hit a, a pretty good balance there. Um, and we've gotten rid of the, you know, the, the Bush and, and, and Obama kind of turnaround strategies where Washington was telling states, this is exactly how it is that you have to fix your schools. Shut them down, fire half the teachers, fire the principal, um, turn it into a charter, turn it into a magnet, um, those types of things. All of that's gone. We've taken away that federal requirement. We turn it back to the states. Now governors and state legislators have to grapple with this and figure out what it is that they're going to do. How do we, how do we turn schools around? Um, you know, the, so a lot of these decisions are now back in the hands of the states, and that's a, I think that's a really good thing. The, um, I'm used to responding and, and not filibustering, so I'll, I'll close early. But, uh, and I'm hoping that we don't get into, a, into an insult round like the presidential debates, but if we are, I'm ready. Um, but the, the most, one of the other important things that I think I'd point out is that this is a four-year law. Um, we've got you know, we, we listened to folks who were concerned about setting the setting the stage for the next you know the next administration, whoever that is, um, and so we we accepted that, and that was an important thing that uh, that we made, and that and we got people to concede to it. So it's a four year law. So in you know three and a half years, a new president, a new administration can put its recommendations forward, and if hopefully we have a Republican president and a stronger Republican majority in both chambers, and maybe we can make a, a bigger difference. But I think it's, it's, a, it's an important step in the right direction. I think it's, it's a very significant step in the right direction to turn the tide, so to speak. And with that, I'll close. Um, I'll, I will now have uh, Lindsay speak to us. Um, and let's invite each of the uh, speakers to present their prepared remarks from the podium. And oh, not a problem. No, I didn't mention that ahead of time. And then uh, during the Q&A, um, I'll moderate from the podium while the uh, panelists stay in their seats. Great. Well, thanks for having me here today. Thanks to Neil for the invitation. And um, I second Michael's remarks. Um, condolences to the Cato family about Andrew. Um, but it's great to be here. So we're here to, to think through how big of a change is it from what was 600 pages of No Child Left Behind to the new 1,059 pages of ESSA. This is really the biggest part of the debate, right? Do we call it ESSA or ESA? Michael sort of skirted that a little bit by saying ESSA. So really, we've got the big, the big problem solved today. But how much of a change is it, really, from the 600 pages of NCLB, the thousands of pages of regulations that accompanied it, to the 1,059 pages of, I'm going with ESSA, and the thousands of pages of regulations that are certain to accompany it as the rulemaking process moves forward? So let me just start by noting, and I think Neil's going to touch on this a little bit more, but one thing that we often hear is that ESSA eliminated the adequate yearly progress requirement, and it did, and that was a great step in the right direction. Adequate yearly progress was not working the way it was intended, and in fact had, I would argue, some unintended consequences. However, if you are a parent, 
sitting around your kitchen table at night worrying about mandated standardized tests, I don't think that the change really makes that much of a difference to you. There was a report that came out a few months ago from the Council of the Great City Schools that said, if you are a child living in a large school district, you take on average 112 mandated standardized tests. Now, some of those are a result of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, specifically No Child Left Behind mandates. NCLB said every child every year in grades three through eight has to take a, an assessment in math and reading, and then again in high school as well. But what we saw was states promulgating formative assessments along the way to assess whether students were prepared for the federally mandated standardized assessments. The fact that ESSA retains the requirement for annual testing, I think in practice will make very little difference for the kids who currently feel that they're taking um, an outsized number of mandated standardized tests. So just to get that out of the way to begin with, I don't think at the end of the day it's going to make much of a difference, especially considering the fact that part of the accountability plans that states now have to submit to the department uh, are based in part, and only in part, but in part on how students do on these standardized assessments. But what I really want to talk about today is why would the Obama administration and teachers unions call ESSA an early Christmas present? Why does the left, in particular, think that this was a pretty good deal for them? And should conservatives find uh, victories in ESSA? And I want to think about this through the lens of programs that are currently retained in ESSA and what it looked like under No Child Left Behind. And No Child Left Behind was a labyrinth of federal programs. There's no two ways about it. So I wanted this to be overwhelming for you, but this is the labyrinth of programs under No Child Left Behind. It's overwhelming, right? <laughs> we had about, and I think David said 89, roughly 80 programs under NCLB, depending on how you count them, whether you count subsets of programs or not. So keep this image in your mind. This is No Child Left Behind. A big part of what proponents of ESSA pointed out or argued was that there was significant program elimination. Well, you often hear them say program elimination and consolidation. And I would argue that it's probably right that they erred on the side of consolidation because, as you're about to see, the elimination was pretty limited. So these are all the programs under NCLB. Many of these programs had not been funded for years and years. They were sort of phantom programs that were part of NCLB. So what if we think just about the programs that were funded? So 37 of these roughly 80 programs had been unfunded, at least since 2013 or before then. So no funding had been appropriated for them. So these are the phantom programs that make up No Child Left Behind. So already, if we're thinking about the baseline for program elimination, we've significantly cut it down to about 40 programs by my estimate. So really, this is what we're working with, right? You have the programs on the left that were funded under No Child Left Behind, and the programs on the right that hadn't seen a penny since 2013 or earlier, so our phantom programs. So what if we just think about the programs on the left? If this is really our baseline for program consolidation, the programs that had been funded, here's what we're really working with. And it's still unwieldy. There are a lot of programs uh, in that baseline. So how many of the programs that were actually funded programs got cut, and by cut, I mean their funding was actually cut as well, under ESSA? A couple. 
There's a handful of programs, I count four, that actually had funding that were cut under the rewrite of NCLB. So pretty limited. So now here's our map, right? Programs that were funded, unfunded, and programs that actually got cut out of ESSA. So just to recap where we are. So what about the programs that remain? Remember that initial image of the programs that were funded, right? So of the programs that were funded under ESSA, under NCLB, and remained under ESSA, so not cut but funded, more than half of them saw spending increase under ESSA. That's pretty significant, I think, when we think about the uh, proponent's position that ESSA actually cut programs. And so what does this mean on balance? On balance, it means that more than half of programs that remain got additional funding under ESSA, that only four or five programs were actually eliminated with their attendant spending, and that we still have a terrible labyrinth of a, of a bill, of course, that 1,051 pages being a big uh, part of that. And it also means that overall, in the aggregate, we did not see spending reduced whatsoever. Right, so this is, uh, has been billed as, well, this is a conservative rewrite of No Child Left Behind. It's a little bit hard to swallow. No Child Left Behind, when you look at all of those programs, spent about $23 billion annually. I think it was 23.2 in the last fiscal year. ESSA, of course, funding hasn't been appropriated yet, but is authorized at about $24.9 billion. So if it meets authorization levels, we'll exceed the amount that's been appropriated under NCLB for all of these programs. And I, too, will not take all of my time, but I will just leave it at um, David had brought up the four-year reauthorization period at the end of his talk. But at the beginning of his talk, he mentioned that NCLB had been seven years past its reauthorization or rewrite deadline. So yes, there's a four-year uh, period in there under which it should be reauthorized. But if history is any guide, I think it's highly unlikely that we will see a rewrite of ESSA on that nice, short four-year timeline. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, let me first of all thank Neil for extending to me an invitation to talk about education today. Uh, let me also give my condolences to the Cato family and in particular to uh, Andrew's uh, uh, family. Uh, he and I had an opportunity to debate, in fact, school choice in Atlanta some years ago at an institute or at an event um, sponsored by the Institute for Humane Studies. I uh, was always a good, smart guy, and uh, well, I hope he missed in person his spirit and his ideas will live forever. When we have a conversation about the role of federal government in education, uh, we often speak if, as if it was a new idea that came into fruition either with No Child Left Behind or more importantly in 1965 with the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. Two laws, uh, both passed by Texans, uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, for the first and uh, President George W. Bush for the second. Today's conversation, and really any conversation about education, is really a discussion about what happened 149 years ago. In 1867, when Congress decided to create what was then the first Federal Department of Education, the goal was to make sure there was a federal presence in the national dialogue about education. Education as we know it today was very different back then. But within one year, the Department of Education was minimized to a bureau or, or an office of education. Why? Because the people in the state said, we don't want the federal government meddling in curriculum, funding, and other matters. Imagine 
Fast forward to 2016, we're having the same conversation today. And so no matter how we look at the alphabet soup, NL, uh, No Child Left Behind, ESSA, ESEA, sometimes our tongue slip on it. Either way it goes, we've got to figure out two things. Is there a role for the federal government in education? And number two, uh, should the role be expansive or small? And I'll answer that question uh, through the lens of two states. I had a chance to serve as Secretary of Education in Virginia and was proud in 2010 to recommend to the Commonwealth that we not accept Common Core, uh, that we not apply for Common Core, and that we not apply for Race to the Top funds. Not because I was against Race to the Top or Common Core, it's just that I believe that Virginia standards, which had been in place before now, No Child Left Behind, uh, was worth keeping and moving forward. I had a chance to serve um, as commissioner in Florida at a time when we had Common Core, and it made sense for Florida to have Common Core, and it made sense for several other states to have Common Core. And while there, I had a chance to manage the process to move uh, Florida to a waiver process. And someone once said, um, they're giving away waivers like candy. And I said, if that's the case, then it's a jawbreaker. <laughs> Because it was a monumental effort to get a number of stakeholders at the table, those from the who represented teachers and administrators, university personnel, those who represented students, those who represented parents, and those who represented uh, school systems, to figure out how do we write a multi-hundred-plus uh, you know, page report to submit to the federal government to receive a waiver to allow us to manage our school system. Well, we submitted it, there were a number of changes that were made. If we had... Um, the current act in place versus what we have before, it would have made my life much easier. Because as a state chief, the new law is going to give me an opportunity to have more of a say-so over, A, how to evaluate our teachers. Because at the end of the day, our school teachers are the ones who are providing the services. Number two is going to provide me a better opportunity on how to invest the funds I have from the federal government also at the state level. Now, I don't expect the federal government to totally step away, but there's a stronger role for state chiefs. And secondly, it's going to provide a stronger opportunity for school superintendents and school boards to have a bigger say from the ground up to the state. Here's how you can be a great partner and not per se just a senior partner, and we find ourselves as being simply the junior partner. I think it was a step in the right direction. I don't think, however, that the federal government, as some of our, uh, our friends say within the conservative movement, that it's totally removed the federal government from education. If you take a look at the 1965 Elementary and Secondary Education Act, if you, took at, um, if you look at the act that was approved when President Clinton was in office, if you take a look at No Child Left Behind, or the current law, is actually with a number of changes. Um, as it was said before, there are a number of changes, a uh, number of programs that remained, but there are a number of programs that are removed. But there's one code, or one, I would say, paragraph that remains in there. The federal government should not have control over states and over education. That's a paraphrase. That's been in every single law from 65 to the present. And yet, while funding continues to rise, while we continue to have the law that the federal government will have very little or no control, it continues to remain in place. I think that will stay in place. When I've talked to parents, I said, well, what do you like about the new bill? They say, well, from what I hear, it's going to give me more opportunities. Probably not as many as I would have liked. I would have loved to have seen Title I portability, would have loved to have seen uh, vouchers and a few other experimentations, but didn't happen. Politics, I get it. When I talk to a few superintendents, they say, well, guess what's going to give me a little more control at the local level? And state chiefs say the uh, same thing. What I see as probably a, a silver lining 
uh, in this is the role that the non-state education entities will play in the process, primarily the role of consultants. While the federal government cannot do everything in state education, I can tell you that state education cannot do everything by itself without some support from the federal government. For the same reason we created a program in 1867 was to at least have a body who can obtain information, disseminate information, and serve as a clearinghouse. There's still that role for the federal government. But you also have to realize that within state parameters, there are human and financial capital challenges that simply will make it tough to do all the work. And so from an entrepreneur standpoint, this is a way to bring in other partners, nonprofit, for-profit, community-based organizations who can come in and say, guess what, State Chief? Here's one part of the new law that's going to require you to do A, B, and C. Guess what? You probably can't do it all. Here's an opportunity for us to do more work. While no uh, law from 1865 to the present discouraged for-profit, non-profit, or community-based organizations from being involved in state-level ed education, I see uh, the new law as providing an opportunity for entrepreneurs to actually come to us with ideas and ways of trying to streamline uh, the process. Um, I remain uh, optimistic about what it will do for education. Um, I still think No Child Left Behind had some great things in it. One in particular was the opportunity to make sure that we not only did not leave any child behind, but more importantly, that we did not hide every child. States and school systems for decades were able to hide through manipulation of data how poorly some of our students were doing, those who were low income, those who came from homes where who qualified for free reduced price lunch, some homes where there were racial or ethnic groups or minority groups were in place, and those homes where had kids who had special needs, and at times students who spoke a language other than English. No Child Left Behind at least opened the door to say, guess what, let's see the good, the bad, and the ugly so that we as a state and a nation can find a way of trying to address it. So I think that was something great. While we may have gotten rid of um, adequately yearly progress, let's remember states and local school systems had the opportunity and the authority to actually create annual tests independent of what the federal government says. In fact, when I had a chance to speak to superintendents, they would often say, well, you know what, it's Gerard, the state's fault. If it wasn't for the state, you wouldn't have to take this test. And I say it's true, we may require one, two, three, maybe four or five tests per year. But when I take a look at your database, I see you have 10 tests. Guess what, the additional five or six were tests that the local school board and superintendent approved. So as we have a conversation about tests, realize that always uh, federally mandated, that are always state mandated, there's also a role for uh, the locals to play as well. So I'm optimistic about it. I understand there will be a federal footprint. Uh, maybe the indent, uh, indent won't be as deep as it was before to No Child Left Behind, but I think there should be a, fo a footprint and look forward to the dialogue. Thank you. Um, I want to just uh, first talk a little bit, just very briefly, uh, this idea of having an insult period. Uh, it may actually be more entertaining if we have an insult period, so it doesn't get loud. <laughs> but the reality is I can't think of anything bad to say about anybody here, so I won't instigate it. Um, but I do have some probably bad things to say about ESSA, so maybe that can be the insult period. Uh, and the first thing I should say that is that even if ESSA, and it is true, we could have a great debate about how you even say ESSA, ESSA, I'll go with ESSA. 
But even if it reduces federal influence to the extent that I think even its most optimistic supporters say it will, it still leaves Washington far too involved in education. I mean, Lindsay's uh, presentation made that abundantly clear. There's still countless programs uh, under No Child Left Behind that exist. Um, and few of those have any meaningful track record of success. Um, and it's important to note whenever we talk about federal education policy that it's unconstitutional. The Constitution gives Washington no authority over education. In fact, you can look at the Constitution, you can scour every word in it, and you won't find education anywhere in there. Um, then what about the track record? Well, while there's some evidence that No Child Left Behind may have helped, I think, to goose some standardized test scores for some kids, primarily at lower grades, uh, if you look at the NAEP scores for 17-year-olds, who are kind of our school's final products, they tell that the overall tale of American education over the last roughly 40 years, 45 years, about the same time, the federal government has been heavily involved. If you look at that 17-year-old scores, uh, they show that Washington has, at the very least, driven no major lasting improvements in education, at least that are discernible through these NAEP scores. Scores have been almost completely flat since the 1970s, despite real federal spending having risen from $696 per pupil in 1979, inflation adjusted, uh, to $1,148 in 2012, so a near doubling, but essentially flat outcomes. Um, of course, it's not just been the federal spending that has ballooned over the decades, but federal control, which tends to go with federal money. Uh, and it sort of, I think, culminated in No Child Left Behind's dictates for uniform state standards, uniform state tests, and the punishments for schools that failed to make, as we already talked about, adequate yearly progress. And it, and it was sort of amped up a little, if you, um, if you know uh, the movie Spinal Tap, they took it to 11. Um, a lot of movie references today. Um, but it was amped up with uh, Race to the Top, um, as well as No Child Left Behind. I, I mean, sorry, as No Child Left Behind waivers. And what we saw was now the executive branch, not just Congress, but the executive branch beginning to exert control. And it ultimately led to uh, the very widespread adoption of the Common Core. So when ESSA came about, we were actually on the verge of having Washington dictate both the operation of education, how public schooling would be structured and, quote unquote, held accountable for performance, and in fact, what the schools would actually teach, which was what Common Core was about. But I think that what we saw was opposition to this kind of top-down, these top-down dictates, and, and I think also a growing dissatisfaction with just a test-obsessed education system was coalescing on both the left and the right, uh, especially with waiver requirements that teachers be assessed based on standardized test scores their students got, and conservative opposition to the Common Core National Curriculum Standards, uh, as well as the federally funded accompanying tests. So I think the ESSA pretty clear was the result of this coalescing uh, dissatisfaction. Uh, and it is supposed to greatly strip Washington of the power it's gathered the last couple of decades and return most of it to states and districts. Uh, and I, as others have said, it contains some good proposals, good components rather, especially ending adequate yearly progress. Um, and going to pains to say, as David's talked about, but I'll quote from the act, Quote, the secretary shall not attempt to influence, incentivize, or coerce state adoption of the Common Core State Standards developed under the Common Core State Standards Initiative or any other academic standards common to a significant number of states 
or assessments tied to such standards or participations in such partnerships. It also says, the SSA also says, the secretary shall not have the authority to mandate, direct, control, coerce, or exercise any direction or supervision over any of the challenging state academic standards adopted or implemented by a state. And the act prohibits the secretary from promulgating rules or regulations that require specific accountability metrics or other specific measures. So that makes ending most of the federal control of education seem pretty complete, right? And I would say it doesn't. And the problem is there seems to be inherently contradictory uh, uh, components to this law, and it's therefore open to potentially pretty broad interpretation. The basic contradiction is that while the law is supposed to return authority to states and districts, it also demands, um, uh, includes demands, rather, about the use of federal funds. Inherently, that implies there's an enforcement authority even where the law suggests it does not have that authority. And this is essentially what the Obama administration and some groups are saying as the major regulation writing process uh, nears. Uh, for instance, in its latest Department of Education budget, the administration writes the following, quote, or the SSA, quote, embraces many reforms the administration has long supported, including requiring states to define and set high standards for college and career readiness and ensuring that states are held accountable for the success of all students. Meanwhile, uh, CONCAN, which is a state education advocacy group but with a national um, presence, uh, they've asked what other groups, not just CONCAN, but I was able to easily find their quote, what they've asked for. They want the feds to make states, quote, maintain challenging and high standards for all students, ensure high quality, valid, and reliable annual statewide assessments, and implement comprehensive and robust school and district accountability and performance systems that help identify and improve our highest need schools and districts. That, to me, doesn't sound like a situation with the feds would have no, quote, authority to mandate, direct, control, coerce, or exercise any direction or supervision of state standards, assessments, or accountability mechanisms. So at the very least, the ESSA seems contradictory and somewhat ambiguous, at least contradictory and ambiguous enough to allow the administration and CONCAN's heavily prescriptive reading of the law, leaving it to the federal government to define what, and this is important, it also leaves it to the federal government to, to define what constitutes challenging in requirements uh, for states to have challenging, this is a quote, challenging state academic standards, academic assessments, and state accountability systems. It also lets Washington decide the mix of academic and other indicators of success in which schools will be judged. In numerous cases, the law also calls for state decisions to be quote-unquote evidence-based, and it appears that the federal government will define what is or is not sufficiently evidence-based. And this all matters because the education secretary ultimately must approve all state plans. But what are those numerous prohibitions against federal identification of quote-unquote specific standards or tests or accountability components? Don't they kind of remove federal teeth and I think the answer quite possibly to that is no. While the secretary cannot say, for instance, you must use Common Core, there's a real danger he or she could just kind of veto plans that he or she doesn't like, saying essentially, I can't tell you what to include, but I can tell you this is not challenging enough. Or they could say, I don't like the evidentiary base of what you plan to do enough. 
essentially, he or she could exercise a death by a thousand vetoes, or maybe just you know, have one veto and place a strategic call to a state education chief, or write an op-ed uh, laying out what seems in the view of the Secretary of Education to be challenging standards or maybe good evidence. Indeed, uh, and as David talked about, nowhere in the race to the top regulations or, or legislation that led to race to the top uh, did the administration actually say states had to use the common core state standards to get maximum poise in the race for race to the top money? But it did make maximizing your points contingent on adopting standards and tests that were common to, quote, a majority of states, which everyone knew was a definition only met by the common core. Heck, the regs even used dates and a time frame specifically designed to accommodate the common core. Or you can look at the waivers that, that the administration put out for No Child Left Behind. It's true that No Child Left Behind gives the secretary authority to attach or, or to give waivers out of components of No Child Left Behind, but it doesn't allow him to attach conditions to those waivers, essentially allowing the executive to rewrite the law. Um, but what happened? The secretary essentially said, look, it doesn't say we can't do this, therefore we can. And I think this is sort of, these are great illustrations of the dangers that we have. It's not, I don't think, that many of the legislators uh, that, who worked very hard on ESSA, I don't think it's that they wanted to keep federal power in many cases. It's that, as we have seen, especially over the last eight years, uh, how open any ambiguity or contradiction is to exploitation. And of course, we see how power tends to grow even without that. And I think this law has some very dangerous ambiguities and contradictions that, as we're seeing already, as we're ramping up to writing regulations, that are being targeted for exploitation. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Neil. And, and thank you to all the participants for, for their prepared remarks and uh, their thoughtful preparation here. So I am, I, many of the presenters um, touched on several common themes. And I'm going to uh, kick off our questioning um, on some of those common themes. So first off, let's talk about standardized testing. And I'm going to first um, <clears throat> direct this to Lindsay, but uh, Lindsay was not the only person bringing this up. But, uh, but Lindsay. Um, does the law do enough to actually um, accommodate parents' preferences with regards to standardized testing? And so, for example, would you endorse opt-out provisions in states to actually go a little bit further? Would you, and uh, um, has this actually sufficiently reined in excessive testing uh, beyond what is required for No Child Left Behind? So no to your first question, and partly no to the second question on the opt-out piece. So no, because we should have at least gotten to a point where we were doing better than in CLB, which this didn't do. Um, in CLB, remember, was the first time the federal government ever dictated to states the frequency with which they had to test students, right? Saying again, every kid, every year in grades three through eight, and then again in high school. That didn't exist pre-NCLB. So I, I think a better approach that actually restored state and local control over assessment policy would have been to eliminate that annual testing mandate in federal law. 
Uh, with regard to the opt-out provision, that's tricky because I think uh, in the way, I think the law recognized that there are federal tests and then there are state tests. And I think many folks who have been thinking about it at a federal level recognize that as well. With an opt-out provision, you run the risk of the feds effectively mandating to states that they have to allow parents to opt out of state tests. And that's not the direction uh, I think that anyone wants to go. If states want to do it, it should be um, on the state to determine whether that's good policy. But to have a federal provision saying states have to allow parents to opt out, uh, I think would have been overly prescriptive. So, no, I don't think it went far enough. I think it should have completely eliminated the annual testing mandate and the law. But then after having done that, left it up to states. And remember, right, we always have the NAEP. We, you know, we will always have, what, what is the line, Paris? We will always have the NAEP, right? Is that what they say? In Casablanca? Yeah, right. I'm trying to bring back the movie references. I'm failing. So, <laughs> but, uh, so we'll always have the NAEP, right? And the NAEP is required under federal law. States have to participate. It's a good test, right? It's a nationally representative sample of kids. And we can see how kids in Texas do relative to how kids in New York do. And I think that that's smart policy. And it's done in a way that doesn't uh, drive local school curriculum or drive curricula that's used in, in districts. And I think that that's good policy and something that is valuable to, to folks like me, to people in Washington who are being counters and want to know how kids in the aggregate are doing. I think that's a very different accountability measure than what parents often look for, right? As a parent, you don't think to yourself, well, how did the kid do on the mandated standardized test or the federally mandated test? You go in, you talk to your teacher, you go to parent-teacher conferences, you see how they do on quizzes and school assessments. Um, so I think we should always, whenever we're thinking about accountability, keep those two provisions distinct, right? Use uh, measures like the NAEP to provide accountability for folks like us on the panel, and then allow parents to define accountability in a way that works for them. Thank you, Lindsay. Uh, Gerard, you also had some comments as well as Neil specifically on standardized testing. I want to open up the opportunity for the two of you to respond. So as a school choice guy, um, I'm, I'm conflicted because I want parents to have the choice on where to send their children, but I want to prescript the choice not to avoid not or to avoid taking tests. Uh, there is a role and a need to evaluate or better yet to assess how well students are doing. Remember, in a majority of the states, education is the number one line item in a governor's budget. It's a lot of money we invest. It would be great to know how well students are doing. We can debate whether it's nationally norm, reference test, or, or, uh, or otherwise, but at the state level, we should assess students and giving parents the opportunity to opt out uh, will provide an administrative challenges for, challenge for states. Uh, and number two, I think it's going to question whether or not we're going to get any uh, data to assess, A, how well students are doing, B, how well teachers are doing in correlation to teaching students, and see at some point we have to hold schools accountable. We don't do it financially. Whether you fail or not, we continue to give you a raise for the most part. So we don't do it that way. So there's got to be a way of making it happen. So I'm torn on the opt-out part. Okay. Thank you, Gerard. Neil? Yeah, I think that school choice, I mean, is ultimately what's most important. So we want to have parents have the ability to choose schools, educators to choose how they want to educate, and then you would see people choosing based on what they think is most important, whether or not their children participated in standardized tests. When we're talking about 
federal law, we're saying, well, should the district get to tell you what test to use, or the state get to tell you, or the federal government? And all of those are sort of second best. Uh, but I will, I think it's also important to note, before there was No Child Left Behind, before there was the Improving America School Act, which preceded No Child Left Behind, lots of people were taking national tests, norm reference tests, that were telling them things about their children. Um, and that's what's really important is that it, parents should have information about their own child and be able to act on that. So getting information to parents hasn't really been the problem for a very long time. It's giving them the ability to act on it. And the other thing that I think has been very uh, unfortunate about No Child Left Behind and the Improving America School Act and the use of tests generally is because they're easy to point to, you know, if you've got 30 seconds to say, I think the school system is good or bad, you say, look, test scores are up, test scores are down, it's good or bad. But you've got to know what's on those tests. Uh, you've got to know the conditions the tests were taken under. And most importantly, there are a whole lot of things people value in education that you can't reflect in a test. So it's, I think ultimately what's important is you have real freedom in education where people choose what they think is most important. And the tendency when we require everybody to take a test is to say, well, the test will tell us what's important even when it isn't. If I, if I could jump in on that, the, this, was, this was probably one of the most difficult things that we faced as we were looking at reauthorizing. The, it was the first hearing that we had in the Senate. It was the question of the annual tests. Should we keep it or should we, should we eliminate it? The, you know, I don't have a, a lot to disagree with with what the three of them have said. The, the, the politics of it were very clear pretty quickly. We had a big coalition of people that said, if you get rid of the annual testing requirement, that will oppose the bill and veto the bill. You had you know, the civil rights community, the business community, the Chamber of Commerce, Business Roundtable. You had a lot of school choice advocates say, hey, we kind of need the test. You had kind of the, the old, um, not in Washington, but kind of the old Republican establishment that was very in favor of George Bush's law that were saying kind of from outside Washington, oh, my gosh, you have to keep it. Um, and then even in, within Washington, within the Republican circles, you had a lot of members say, well you know, maybe the annual test is, is important, it provides information, it prov you know, school choice for communities, uh, low-income communities, communities of color, it's, it's providing some decent information. And kind of what, what we ended up deciding was that the, the problem wasn't necessarily the federal mandate of the 17 tests over a kid's life in the school. You know, one reading test, one math test every year, three through eight, once in high school, and then the, the science test every, on the grade span, three through six, three through five, six through nine, and, and once in high school. 17 tests, not a huge burden for the $24 billion in federal government, but you know, still a federal mandate. But it was the accountability system that really kind of screwed everything up. It was the kind of, we, I call it the death penalty moment of No Child Left Behind. If you didn't meet your AYP, if you didn't meet your AMO on the test, and only the test, essentially, you got the death penalty. School had to shut down, school had to do supplemental services, school had to do school choice, school had to convert, and then the waivers only exacerbated it. And so you start with the 17 tests, but then, you know, and Lindsay pointed out there was, you know, the, the Great City School said the schools were doing 112 tests a year or something like that. And it was because everybody was so terrified of the unthinking, one-size-fits-all accountability system of AYP and, and No Child Up Behind and the waivers that the, the adults kind of logically said, oh, well, I can't wait until the end of the year test. I've got to do a quarterly test and a weekly test and a monthly test and a daily test and an hourly test, and let's test right now. And so you have this just explosion of 
was being broadcast. So really bad tests that were used for all of the wrong purposes. Then throw on top of that, Arnie Duncan and his waivers comes in with a teacher evaluation mandate and says, my gosh, you can't just test the math and the reading teachers. That's not fair. That's not equitable. So now test every subject. And we didn't have standardized tests for all of the subjects, but by God, somebody bought, you know, created one so they could sell it. And so now we start testing in all of these other subjects with really, really bad standardized tests that were used for totally inappropriate purposes. And so we have this you know, continued explosion of testing for all of the wrong purposes. So what did we do? We fixed it by trying to say, keep the test, but have the accountability at the state level. Reduce the impact of the importance of tests. And I look at it kind of from, I'm a dad of a three, uh, third grader. And, like, yeah, I look at the test. It's kind of important to me to find out how my kid's doing. But as, as, as Andrew said, there's a lot more that goes into whether my kid is succeeding or failing in school. It's her, you know, does she show up every day? She does. Does she participate in class? Does she do her book reports? Does she do all of these other things? And those are much more robust and important to me as a parent and I think to most parents. So I think we've created a system where over time we'll, we will hopefully see a diminution of all of this testing and more focus on other things. It is, you know, I'm a broken record, it's now up to states. States have to figure this out. So I think we've, I think we've turned the tide. On the opt-out, you know, we didn't do enough, um, but it was another one of those tough political situations where we had people saying, oh my God, you can't let um, parents opt out. You had the, the reality that Lindsay pointed out, we couldn't mandate to states to have an opt-out because some states like Tennessee, requires the use of the state test, which is the same as the federal test, as part of their accountability system. So if we passed a law that said you have to allow an opt-out, we've broken Tennessee's accountability system. That's not appropriate. But could we have done more to say if a state has an opt-out system that they want to do, should more students have been able to opt-out? Yeah, absolutely. But the politics weren't there to get a bill passed with 60 votes in the Senate and signed by the president. Thank you, David. Um I want to push on uh, perhaps a, a, a difference that I see arising between your statements versus Gerard's statements from earlier. Uh, Gerard noted, uh, made, uh, <clears throat> made a, a note in his comments about how many of the tests that we are complaining about, and Lindsay, you said it, this 117? 12. 112 the Council of Great from, City from the, city, the Council of Great City Schools uh, report. Um, <clears throat> uh, Gerard points out that many of these are local and state mandated, not federal mandated. And so, um, and whereas you, um, David, are attributing these to as a response to um, federal, e even though it's not a federal mandate, it's, it's a response to federal pressure mm -hmm. uh, to evaluate teachers. Um, Gerard, would you like to comment on that? Do you, do you feel that this is a, 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 a fair characterization? Do you feel like um, that uh, states are perhaps, or, or that there's still a little too much um, blame on the federal government or not enough? It depends on where you sit. So if you're at the local level and you're at a school board meeting or a community group and someone says there are too many tests, it's easy to point up. And states were doing that under No Child Left Behind. What's well, D.C.? Well, now we've changed it. You can't say D.C. anymore. You've got to say state. So it's too early to tell exactly how that will play out, but we can at least say we can't blame Washington, D.C. for this one. Okay. I think it's also important to point out that not all tests are created equal. I mean, the, there are, you know, the, the big standardized tests that take a lot of time and effort, and then there's, you know, is the spelling quiz at the end of the week a test? So, you know, we, we have to be careful about, you know, saying that everything is, is a federally required or a state required. I mean, you know, teachers do 
quiz and test their kids, you know, regularly to make sure that they're learning what it is that they're learning. But I do think that we're, I think we've created a, a, a moment where states can eliminate the 112 if they want. They can't blame Washington for it. So now it's going to be up to, you know, every governor and every school, school board and every, you know, legislature, is this what we want? And what's interesting about opt-out is you don't hear parents opting out of the SAT or the ACT or the exams to prepare students to become national merit scholars. It's just very interesting what tests we choose to opt out of. Those are important tests. They have consequences. But we don't hear parents arguing for that. Just a side note. Thanks, Gerard. Lindsay, you have a comment? I just quickly would add that as part of a state's accountability system, they still have to include some portion of how kids do on state or federally mandated tests. So not to contradict Gerard at all, but I do think we're still going to see states pointing upward to Washington saying, we've got to include this in our accountability system. And I guarantee you, we will not see a reduction in those 112 mandated standardized tests. Yeah, and I, I guess I'll add, that's one of the ambiguities uh, that I think is important is, it sort of appears to leave it to the Department of Education to define what, how much of what a state or an, an a district uh, uses to assess their schools has to be test scores. And we don't really know. So it says, I think it's something like much more of it has to be academic assessments versus non-academics. And we've left that now to the regulators to write that. And that leaves a lot of room for things to maybe not come out the way we want. And I, I'll also, I'll just say that people do actually opt out of the ACT or SAT or AP tests. Um, and we see colleges now opting out of requirements for SAT or ACT. And I think that that is sort of an illustration, not that I will ever say higher education is a free market, because it's not, we could, have, we could probably have several forums on that, maybe we will. But it is more of a market than K through 12 education and that, for the most part, the institutions are autonomous and people choose. And so not surprisingly, you see some schools that say, we don't think the SAT or ACT is important. You see some students who say, I don't think that that's a good measure of who I am. So that's the sort of system where we do have national tests, we kind of have national standards, but there's flexibility in there for people to tailor the education that they deliver and that they get for themselves based on their needs. Thank you, Neil. Um, I think we've spent enough time on testing for now. Let's move to a different topic. Um, and why don't I uh, open it, open the floor to audience Q&A if there are any, uh, any questions from the audience. Um, as a general note for, for audience participation, please wait to be called on and also wait for the microphone so that everyone in the room um, and our audience watching online can hear the question. And please also announce your name and affiliation and also please uh, make sure you ask a question. <laughs> I, I had a question up here. Please go ahead, sir. Hi, I'm Roy Gamsey, uh, recently retired from Imagine Schools, a national uh, public charter school organization. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in uh, kind of the pragmatic effects, and uh, maybe I'll ask for a prediction. Uh, thinking about the case of the state of Mississippi, uh, several of you have cited the NAEP as a objective measure of school performance in Mississippi was near the bottom uh, before No Child Left Behind. Uh, no Child Left Behind was designed to bring uh, state performance up. Uh, Mississippi and other states uh, responded not with a race to the top, but a race to the bottom. They lowered their standards so enough of the kids would pass uh, or even be, appear exemplary. 
uh, and and that way they didn't uh, didn't have the punishments that uh, uh, No Child Left Behind promised. I'm curious what you think will happen uh, with the revised structure in the, in the new law. Is is there anything there that will uh, change the behavior of of states that aren't delivering a strong education to their children as measured by NAEP or or, or other uniform tests or is, is, is it just going to be this business as usual for them? Or, or maybe the, your answer is it's none of our business. Let the, let the, let the states uh, continue not delivering good education to their children. Um, so it's not, none of our business. Thank you for the question. Who wants to start on that? Lindsay? I'll, I'll take it uh, first. So I, I do think for the most part it will be business as usual in terms of how they respond to federal policymaking and mandates. Um, where I am optimistic, and you're absolutely right, I think you illustrated the unintended consequences uh, paradigm that I was talking about earlier with adequate yearly progress. Thankfully, that's gone, but that race to the bottom that we saw. What I am optimistic about, though, is everything that's not happening at the federal level. Mississippi became one of five states to enact education savings accounts last year and a few states before that. I mean, that is going to do far more to revolutionize what's happening in Mississippi than anything we've seen handed down from the federal level. That will do far more to infuse accountability in Mississippi's education system than anything we've seen at the federal level and far more to empower parents to actually match learning options with their children's unique learning needs. So I'm incredibly optimistic about what's happening at the state level. Mississippi's got a really small pilot program right now that they're trying to expand statewide or make more universal. So I'm optimistic on that front. I think it's going to be business as usual in terms of how they interact at the federal level. Great. Thank you. Should we do, yeah. Sure. I think that, I mean, it's a combination of, it's not that it's not none of our business. It's just, it's not much of our business. It's, you know, we're, we're a federalist system. States are the primary driver, especially in education, are the primary driver, the primary primary funder um, in K through 12 education. Nationally, it's you know roughly the federal government pays about 10 percent. In some states, it's a little bit more. But it's you know federal education is kind of like the mafia, in that you know that you got the junior partner telling the the big partner what to do on everything that it is that they do, and that's you know what we were trying to change. So I think you know when it comes to Mississippi, and and I don't since I don't really know who the governor of Mississippi is, but elect a good governor, elect a good legislature, elect a good school board, and, and take, take responsibility for it. And, that, and that's what we think that we've done, that we've said, you know, you no longer, under No Child Left Behind, you know, you had the race to the bottom because you had federal consequences for, for, for low test scores. So, of course, everybody's trying to get out of it. I mean, I got a, you know, a third grader, like, when I try to impose something, like, she's always trying to figure out how to not get blamed for something. So, she's a good kid, but, but she doesn't want to get, she doesn't want to be, to disappoint me, and she doesn't want to get a consequence. And so, you know, she tries to behave or she tries to avoid it. Mississippi, under No Child Up Behind, you know, tried to avoid it, and they were able to say, oh, well, Washington made me do this, and, you know, so we, you know, now our standards are this, and we're fine, because we're not going to get punished. So, now, with Washington not having that top-down ability, we, th we think, we hope, that Mississippi now owns these decisions. And so if you get a governor, you get a legislature, you get people that, that say, oh my gosh, we have to do this. I mean, they've started with education savings account. That's great. If we could you know, do more of that in Washington, we would. Um, but you know, they're going to own their accountability system. They're going to own their assessment system. They're going to own their standards. So if you create kind of a civic community that says this is important and this is what we, what we want and what we need, you know, we 
that I think is the only way to change it. I can't, you know, we didn't do very good in Mississippi with no child left behind in the waivers. So more of Washington isn't going to do a better job. More of Washington isn't going to change anything. So maybe we turn it back to the states and say, you know, hey, it's really on you. And for the first time since, you know, the 80s, it's it's on you and you own it. And you can't say, you know, oh, that, you know, that George Bush or that Barack Obama or that, you know, Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton or Martin O'Malley or, you know, all the Republicans. Um, I can do a little humor, right? Um, <laughs> you know, the, the, you know it's, it's, it's not Washington's responsibility to tell us what to do anymore. Now we've got to own it. Yeah, thank you. Well, so I would think, or I'd say that, I do think that there will be less of this um, pressure to keep low standards. I don't know that we really ultimately saw so much of a race to the bottom as most states were at the bottom in terms of the level of their standard, what they called proficiency, and just most didn't move. Uh, and I do think, though, that, that the ESSA kind of lifts the pressure that sort of said, keep a low definition of proficiency because you will have all your schools get bad grades. Um, by eliminating adequate yearly progress, and I think if there's one thing everybody agrees on here, it's it was good that we got rid of adequate yearly progress. But that said, it does say, look, if you're in the lowest 5% of schools that you, uh, you, know, you have to have some changes made. So it's not like the testing is irrelevant, but it certainly reduces the pressure on all the uh, schools and districts in a state. The other thing I think is important to note, though, is when we like to uh, abuse Mississippi or other schools, or I mean other states that have low test scores, I, I do think it's important to realize that different states and different districts have different populations of kids that they're working with, and some have bigger challenges than others. And this was a fundamental problem of No Child Left Behind. It said, look, if you're not all proficient in this district, you must be bad, because over here they're all proficient. And yes, there was lots of gaming what proficient meant, but we also had to accept some schools are dealing with kids who are much further behind, who need a lot more help. And that's one of the really, that was one of the, bad parts of No Child Left Behind is it didn't make any, it didn't distinguish among those schools. And I think we have a tendency to say a system or a school or a district is bad because their test scores are bad and we need to have a much more nuanced uh, assessment of what's going on in education rather than just saying that school with the bad, the low test scores is a bad school. And that's why you want to get away often from these sort of top-down, one-size-fits-all dictates from the federal government or from states or from districts. And ultimately, you've got to put the power in the hands of parents and free up educators to try lots of different things and not be sort of pinned down by rules and regulations. Thank you. And Gerard, did you have a comment to add? Sure. One of the reasons President Bush and Secretary Rod Page had to push for annual state testing is because in the absence of giving a hard ball, you've got to do this, states prior to then were doing little to nothing. So it was more of a heavier stick than probably we would like. Fast forward to 2016, there are two things in place that's going to make it a lot tougher to lower the standards. Number one, family is a little more sophisticated in 2016 about how to utilize not only choice, but how to ask for the type of uh, education they think their kid deserves, whether it's based upon if they're in a state with an A to uh, F model. They may not know exactly what the model is, but they know what an F looks like. And so that changes one dynamic. Number two, you have a lot of nonprofit organizations who have grown to uh, such size and presence that they're now in front of state legislatures testifying and organizing. So I think there's going to be a strong grassroots up approach that will at least make the conversation harder when it comes down to lowering standards. Thanks, Gerard. 
Let me, let me go to an, another question. Um, this is pushing on, a little bit on uh, David's comments from earlier. David, you mentioned that um, uh, NCLB required uh, states to have a mother-may-I relationship uh, to the federal government and uh, where, where states needed permission to do everything. And you said this is now uh, more or less removed or at least mitigated uh, with ESSA. Um, Neil had a, a countervailing view, which is that uh, it still doesn't do enough and there is still a lot of power within a veto um, and uh, which could now be subject to interpretation and opens the door on any, um, any potential variety of actions on the federal government's part. So um, what do you think? I, I want to push this uh, point of conversation a little bit further. Sure. I mean, I, you know, the easy, I do work for a politician, the easy answer is we're both right. Um, we, you know, <laughs> did we do an... Did we do enough? No, absolutely not. I mean, if we, you know, if, if, if Lamar Alexander had been able to write the bill that, that he wanted to write, and if he was philosopher king and didn't need to get 60 votes and get the president to sign it, would the law look very different? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, you know so there, we always, you know, you have to make concessions. And the, you know, so, you know, you got Senate Democrats, some Senate Republicans. I mean, we, we didn't get a majority vote on our voucher bill amendment. Um, so that means we lost a bunch of Republicans. We, and we had the president. So there, you know, there's always, you know, in the, in the nitty gritty of actually passing a bill, there's always concessions and compromise. That's not necessarily a, a horrible thing. It just leads to less than optimal policy sometimes. But the, but what we did, we think is we've, we've significantly curtailed the, the ability for the secretary to regulate in areas. And we've significantly changed the peer review process. Um, where which which both administrations um, used to to great power and advantage. I mean, I I worked at the Bush administration when No Child Left Behind was being implemented, and I kind of was helped. Be, I don't necessarily want to take credit for it, but I you know I helped in all of the implementation of it in some ways, and you know so I saw really firsthand what what the Bush administration did, and then I saw kind of from the congressional perspective what Obama's administration did with waivers. And so we, we took a lot of that experience and, and really restricted the secretary's ability through peer reviews to micromanage and to say no on things. Uh, we, you know, we, 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 we prevented the, the secretary from dictating a range or a number, a specific number on how much the tests count. So we, we leave it to states to say, it's, you know, tests are really important to us. Some states may say, we love No Child Left Behind, 100% testing is all we care about. Fine, that's that's your choice. Some states may say we're going to do the bare minimum and do 51%. That's fine with us too, and it should be fine with the Department of Education. The the kind of the the negotiating has has previously been done on on a state plan behind closed doors, you know, with staff, you know, a lot younger than me, um, dictating to states what it is that they're supposed to do. We've we've turned that around and made it a lot more transparent. So we've given governors the ability to say this is. Um, I, sometimes I forget that I'm in front of a camera. Um, this is not good, so we're not going to do that. And you know, the ability for the secretary, for the governor to go to the secretary and say, "You're absolutely wrong. This is not what our state wants, and we're not going to do it." Um, and without the without the hammer of No Child Left Behind and AYP, governors are going to have a lot more flexibility to say no um, to kind of the whims of the secretary. You know, this administration or the next one. So, you know, is it, is it absolutely enough? No. I mean, in Lamar's ideal world, we would do what he called a Medicaid swap that we would, and this is what he proposed to President Reagan, states take over all of K-12, the federal government take over all of, all of Medicaid and leave each other alone in both policies. Um, 
you know, so he still thinks that that would be kind of the ideal policy, you know, get out of the federal government, get out of education entirely. Um, but did we make a significant change in the right direction? We think yes. Great. Yeah, and I, I think, first of all, it's important to say from where I sit that I completely understand the difficulty of actually getting laws written and having to compromise. When, when you're in a think tank, you sometimes don't have to compromise. You can put out what you think is the ideal. And so I totally recognize the difficulty of that. What my main concern is I think we should all be clear-eyed about what the potential is for this to be subverted from what what I think Senator Alexander wanted and a lot of other people, that looks to me, when you read it, like there's enough play in the words and contradiction within what we're trying to ask the federal government to do that you could see maybe the intent be subverted to having the secretary, again, exercise control that people didn't expect him to have. Uh, um, when it comes to the peer review, this is actually a question I've asked. I didn't ask Senate staff. I asked House staff. I said, is the secretary, I asked, is the secretary required to do what peer review says he should do or follow the recommendation to peer review? And what they told me was, well, no, he's not bound to use peer review. Now, I could be wrong about that, but that's what I was told. And if that's the case, then peer review is good. It gives something for people to point at who don't like maybe what the secretary decides, but it doesn't sound like it's legally binding on him to use it. But I think really most important, again, is this being clear-eyed, and, and I think, Gerard, you mentioned that since 1965, there have been provisions in every federal education law that essentially said that the federal government can't dictate your program of instruction, your curriculum, things like that. And it hasn't ever said, you must use, for instance, Common Core, which is as close as we've gotten to a dictated federal curriculum. But there, in fact, I think somebody said, it might have been Arnie Duncan, that Secretary of, or Education Department lawyers are smarter than congressional lawyers, or something along those lines, to say, oh, we'll find a way to do what we want to do. I think he said that. Don't quote me on that. So he did. Sure so you've, you've reached the insult round. <laughs> I'm, only, one of us I'm doing channeling the insulting. insults it from was, former yeah, Secretary Duncan. It just, I mean, that was, you know, that was extraordinarily uncalled for and, and very inappropriate, um, what he said. I mean, we worked carefully with the department. We worked carefully with the White House and with you know, congressional Democrats, congressional Republicans, trying to, to reach a, you know, a consensus on what the language was and, and did. And you know, so I, I, I hope that he regrets those comments. But the... You know, that's, you know, the language that you read at your opening the, the, on the Common Core Standards, I mean, that's what, what, you know, what used to take one word now with this administration took 11. We had to basically open up the thesaurus and keep running out of words to add on incentives, mandate, coerce, control, um, <laughs> to, to try to prevent as, as few unintended consequences as possible. And, and that's, that is, you know, one of the, the things that congressional staff, especially on the Republican side, spend a lot of time trying to do. How do we you know, what is it that, you know, this administration wanted to do, we're going to try and figure out how many different ways to block it as possible um, in a way that the Democrats could live with. And, and that was our goal. I think, you know, are there, is there absolutely possible room for unintended consequences? Sure. Um, and that's, you know, what kept, you know, me up and Lamar up and, and our staff up um, every night trying to figure out how is, how do we, how do we do this in a way that this, it does what it is that we want? Um, and that's why we're going to be very vigilant in oversight of the implementation of the law with hearings and, and meetings and uh, conversations and letters and kind of as much oversight as we possibly can to make sure that the department administers the law the way that it was written. But, you know, yes, there, there is absolutely room for, you know, error. I mean, we, Lamar has, you know, 
we have really good staff um, that try to do a really good job, but we're not, you know, we're not flawless. Um, and so that's what we, that's what oversight will will help us do. And then also we think that you know we've created an opportunity for states to push back a lot harder than they felt that they could um, over the past um, decade of No Child Left Behind and the waivers, where states can say, hold on, this isn't what the law says, and this isn't what we're going to do. And you know, nuts to you, Secretary of Education or uh, Department of Education or Administration. So it's it, but you're, you're you're absolutely right to be worried about unintended consequences, and that's what we have to be vigilant for. Yeah. Can I Thank just you, David. jump in quickly on this question sure. of whether there's been 30 a seconds. thirty seconds diminution <laughs> of the mother may I mentality? I go back to that labyrinth of programs that I showed you earlier. Right, most of the vast majority of those programs are these small niche competitive grant programs. States have to apply for each and every one of those programs. They have to monitor federal register notices. They have to report back to the department on whether or not they're meeting metrics. So those still exist uh, in a major way under the law. And so there are ways beyond just the accountability systems in which the federal government keeps its claws in state education policymaking. And I think the labyrinth of competitive grant programs that remain is a big part of that. Okay. Thank you, Lindsay. Uh, we have time for one more question from the audience, if we have any others quickly. And we'll do a, a lightning response, so uh, limit any responses to one minute, and I'm going to have two respondents only. Thank you. My name is Patrick Linehan. I'm from uh, George Mason University. Uh, question I have is, is, is kind of related between time and culture. Because while we've passed laws that kind of back the federal government out to some degree, and that's been challenged there. Um, Gerard, you mentioned in your um, prepared remarks about opportunities for entrepreneurs to come forward. You just mentioned again that you see a grassroots support. But there's a lot of culture that has to change so that the local school boards and the school districts are open to that. And now I look at the time for it, because in four years, David's going to be working on the committee to reauthorize this, and maybe it will be reauthorized on time and maybe not. Um, but in that interim, you're going to see a lot of fits and starts of these ground uh, groundswell support. Um, how do you think that will influence, and how, you know, what's the time factor of making all of these changes and, uh, and dealing with that? Great question. Uh, one minute for two respondents. David, it looks like you're up. The, I mean, that's a, that's I think the, a good question and, and a tough tough to answer. I think it it really depends on the state's appetite for 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 flexibility, freedom, innovation. Um, some states will you know keep the status quo and keep their waiver and kind of just muddle along because it's easy. Other states will be you know ch- are chomping at the bit to be innovative, and you know we're we're hoping to challenge the governors and challenge the chief state school officers and, and legislatures to really take the opportunity to change, get away from this, this top-down system and develop the systems that they want. But it, it, it is kind of a, a, ultimately a choice at the, at the state level to figure out how to do that. And Gerard, you had a comment on this in your prepared remarks. This is going to change the ability for educators, teachers, principals, and superintendents to communicate with families and stakeholders much quickly or much or much quicker than we could 25 years ago. So that will shrink the time. And social anthropologists define culture as a transition of ideas, um, ideas and beliefs from one generation to the next. People believe that school matters today and that we should make it happen. And so the culture is in our side and with technology is going to speed it up. Thank you, Gerard. 
So let's go to just some final, final, over, uh, final remarks from each of our participants. Uh, I'll give you 20 seconds each. <laughs> or 30 seconds. How about 30 seconds? I can Go do ahead. 20. So the uh, accountability systems that are in place with that 51% roughly still requiring state assessments to, to comprise uh, how states define accountability will be a big part of the reason why states continue a system of vertical accountability, faux accountability to Washington instead of a horizontal accountability to parents and to taxpayers that can only really be fostered through state and local level school choice options. So at the end of the day, you know, Gerard talked about entrepreneurship earlier. If we go back, Andrew Colson had a great figure, $2 trillion spent at the federal level since 1965. If the federal government were any private industry and had spent $2 trillion and had flat output, had nearly tripled its overhead expenditures, we would have called that a massive failure. I think in large part, mainly due to the programs and testing requirements that remain, that we're not going to see uh, any change, uh, little if any change, moving forward. Thank you, Lindsay. Neil. Yeah, I would just repeat to fear the ambiguity that we see in the law. And it's really incumbent on lots of people to watch very carefully the regulation process. Of course, that's sort of hard for average people to do. Uh, which is ultimately goes to what Lindsay said, which is whether you're talking about regulation, certainly at the federal level, but even the state or local level, it's very hard for the average person to do. It's why ultimately the solution to almost all these problems is school choice. Make educators respond to the needs uh, and demands of the people they're supposed to serve and don't make those people they're supposed to serve be subject to a incredibly costly uh, and difficult legislation and regulation process. But obviously we're not there right now, which means people need to be very, very vigilant, and I'm sure David will be, about how the regulations are actually written to put this law into effect. Thank you. Gerard. I remain optimistic that this law will help expand the idea that education matters, that there's a role for the public to play in it. Uh, while it may have gotten rid of uh, certain aspects of No Child Left Behind, what it still keeps in place is the idea that all of us are stakeholders at the table and we need to make schools work for all kids. I'm glad to see a smaller federal footprint, but I do think there should be a footprint. Thanks, Gerard. And David, final words. Since we're quoting movies, I would quote William Wallace that if it's, it's all for nothing if you don't have freedom. And I, what we think that we've done is we've given states freedom and flexibility to, to change course. It's up to them to decide what to do about it. And it's up to us to make sure that the department implements the law that it w the way that it was written. Um, if, it's, if it's not implemented well, it's not worth the paper that it's written on. The, um, the, just to close, the, the one thing that I would say is, you know, conservatives, sometimes we worry a little bit too much about the 20% that we didn't get or the 30% that we didn't get and don't celebrate the 60 or 70 or 80% that we did get. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm frankly a, a Reagan-esque happy warrior. We, it's a, you know, we, tomorrow is going to be a better day. Um, and the day after that is going to be better than that. So we've got to celebrate the things that we were able to achieve in a situation where we had a Democratic president and we don't have 60 votes in the Senate. This is a significant victory, a significant change in the right direction. Is it enough? No. But is it a move in absolutely the right direction? Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, David. And as a final note, um, <clears throat> there will be lunch served um, up on the second floor or in the second level in the uh, George M. Yeager Conference Center up the spiral staircase. Restrooms are on the way to the second floor on your way to lunch, so look for the yellow wall. Um, I want to please join me in thanking um, our four panelists, and uh, I thank you as the audience for your attention and for your participation today. Thank you. Thank you.